Often when we study the Bible, we're told that we need to remember to put whatever reading into context, into proper context. And we're tasked with going back to the first century or even before that to kind of understand exactly what we're reading and place ourselves in the shoes of the original writer. And we could ask ourselves questions like, what was their culture like? Or what history did they understand? Or what was their purpose for writing what they wrote here that I'm reading? What do they mean by this phrase or that phrase? We could ask, what clues can I get about this individual person that might allow me to gain some clarity on what I'm reading and what they wrote down here? Now, obviously, we know that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that he meant for it to be accessible to all people at all times so that no matter how basic or complex a look you take at the scripture, everyone who approaches it might have a reasonable chance if God is calling them at understanding what is written there. God's preserved enough at all levels, no matter, again, how complex or how simplistic a look you take at scripture, he's preserved enough that all different kinds of people that he calls can respond to the message inside. And that message, I think, is summed up in Acts 2 when Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do believe that context is incredibly important. I, I really do believe that. I want to state that very clearly. I'm not against context. I think it's, it's something that can really add a lot of depth to what we're reading. Context is important. Getting into the mindset of the author of any given book to help you better interpret what they're saying can definitely help you to understand what's, what's written there. However, sometimes this can be really tricky to do if we don't understand our own modern context for certain words or phrases in the Bible. So we kind of have to work backwards a little bit. We can't walk back to the original context unless we understand what we even mean by the words we're saying in the context we have them in right now. So what do I mean by this? What's an example, a concrete example? Well, I think two words uh, really exemplify this, and that, that is the words faith and belief. Now, these two words have always been very interconnected words, both linguistically and conceptually, as far back as the Old and New Testaments were written. Now, I'm taking a little bit of a plunge into linguistics of ancient language, which I am not an expert in by any means, so please bear with me. I'm going to try and make it uh, as simple as possible and as uh, easy to follow as possible. But the root words for these two English words, belief and faith, in Hebrew and Greek can go back to just one Hebrew word and one Greek word, or at least the root words of those things. So in Hebrew, the root word for belief or faith was the word aman or emun. And emun came later, aman was first, but they're basically the same root word essentially implies belief or faith. And then in Greek, the root word is pitho. So sometimes aman is used in, in Hebrew to discuss belief, and sometimes it's used to discuss faith. And this is based on what context it's in, what suffixes are added to the word, things like that. It can change the context of the word itself, but essentially that root word is used across the Bible. Anytime there's a Hebrew word for faith, faithfulness, things like this, aman or emun is used. And in Greek, the same can be said for pitho. And this is the same, uh, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament Septuagint, 
the writers of that also put pitho for belief or faith. So these are very interconnected words, honestly the same word in Greek and Hebrew. However, just because the words are similar or even interchangeable in scripture does not mean that the distinct concepts that we have today were foreign to the original writers. I hope, I hope you're following so far. So they have one word that means this thing that in English we have two words for. But it doesn't mean that the concepts as being distinct, faith and belief, were separate or were not separate in the minds of the original writers. So context informed the difference between the words for the biblical writers or the concepts. And this is true for a lot of Greek and Hebrew. Um, they, they had far fewer words than we have, so they morphed a lot of their words to mean a lot of different things. One word in Hebrew could mean a whole host of concepts in English because we've just added more and more words to kind of further define those concepts. But we do still have a few examples of this, like they did in Hebrew or Greek, where one word can mean multiple different things. They're called homonyms. One example is the word letter. You use letters to write a letter, and yet those are two different things. When I say I'm writing you a letter, I don't say I'm writing out the alphabet to you. You know, it's distinct in our minds. We understand that they're two concepts, even though we use one word. So with faith and belief, what has happened is that in order to not confuse the two concepts, we have now added two distinct words that get plugged in different places in the Greek and in the Hebrew based on our perception and our understanding of the intended meaning. So we're taking a modern concept, the separation of belief and faith, and we're applying it to the Bible based on the concept we see in the context that we see it in. Now, this means that we have to understand what we mean by belief and faith in order to put these words in the appropriate spot when translating or interpreting the Bible. And the result of all of this is that, to be totally honest, we have confused these words over time so that conceptually, to most people, there is absolutely no difference. Faith and belief are just basically the same thing. Now, you might think on face value, this is a great thing. This is a really good thing. Hebrew and Greek only had one word for it. We gained two words for it. That just confuses things. Let's just make them interchangeable. Let's make them the exact same thing because they are the same thing, right? I don't think that's right. Remember, we have to understand how we use these modern words because to us, they have two separate distinct meanings. Just like in the Hebrew and Greek, they use one word but had two separate and distinct concepts. And even those who recognize that these two words are different will state things like, well, faith is just belief, but without evidence. It's just beyond belief, because belief is something where you have proof for it, you have evidence, it's something you think, but faith is beyond that. Faith is just, you close your eyes and you just have faith. It's more ethereal. But this is not true. Christians and atheists will both make this distinction about faith. They'll say faith is belief without evidence. The problem is this plays right into skeptic hands because you know what else has that same definition, belief without evidence, is gullibility. You have no reason at all to believe this, and yet you do. That means you're gullible. And yet a Christian will say, yeah, belief without evidence, that's my faith and almost tout it like it's some, some prideful thing, like I don't even need evidence to believe it. And this plays right into skeptic hands. Now I believe that the confusion over these two words 
It can be innocent in nature, but I believe that it can actually cause a lot of harm and complacency in our lives as Christians if we're not careful, particularly relating to the events of Pentecost. Now, we're going to we're going to go over how that is true later, but first I'd like to explain a little bit about these two words and kind of reorient ourselves as to what the words faith and belief mean. Now, interestingly, two other words are very closely related to faith and belief, and those are related conceptually, not linguistically, but in a Hebrew or Greek mindset, these words would have fallen right in line with the concepts of faith and belief and kind of been meshed together within those two words, aman or pithos. And those words are truth and hope. Two words that we'd say, yeah, I mean, I guess they're connected. They're, they sound nice. I could see someone probably putting that on a sign on their wall from Hobby Lobby. You know, truth, belief, faith, hope. Ah, my home. It's something nice. They're vaguely biblically related, and we understand that there's a connection there, but we don't have that connection as solidly in our minds as ancient Greeks or Hebrews did. So let's go through these words uh, one at a time. We'll go through the Hebrew first. So we're looking at the word aman or emun. Now this word, meaning faith or belief, is where we get the Hebrew word amen or amen that we say at the end of prayers, meaning verily, in truth, or let it be so. So we can already kind of see how this word aman, meaning faith or belief, is related to truth in a way. Because our word amen, that comes from this root word aman, also has the implication of truth in it. Now the issue with this word, and a lot of other Hebrew words, in all honesty, is that for modern readers, we don't understand that this word includes so many things. It's not just faith. It's not a word-for-word translation, right? It describes a whole concept of things. Now when I say the words, I trust you, you instinctively know what I mean. If, if someone comes up and they say, do you trust me? And I say, yes, I trust you. I know what I'm getting myself into because I'm using the context of every situation where trust has come up. I'm using my understanding, my experience, my previous usage of that word to inform myself about what the, word I, or the words I trust you mean. And this happens for us automatically because we're living in the context that we're living in right now. So it's, it's obvious, it's clear, it's, it's instant. But since we don't have the same experiences or previous usages or context of the original Hebrew or Greek words, a lot of the connotations can get lost on us, so it gets translated into just one word when really it means a whole myriad of things. So an example of this, in Genesis 42, if you turn there with me, Genesis 42, we'll see an example of the word aman used. Genesis 42, and we'll start reading in verse 18. Now, this is in the account of Joseph and his brothers. He is number two in Egypt. His brothers have come to him, and they've told him their story, and this sad story about how their father's back in Canaan, and he's starving, and the famine is going on, and their their youngest brother is back there. And Joseph is kind of having a little bit of fun with them, and he asks them to go back and get Benjamin. And here's what he says here in verse 18. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, 
and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. Your words will be verified. This contains this word aman, this root word aman, meaning reliable, stable, believable, faithful, true. Then further, this word aman can be used and it can be paired with suffixes like hifil or nifal. And both of these have the connotation of certainty or assurance, though hifil is only used for God and nifal is used of God and man. So they're a little bit different, but very similar, meaning certainty or assurance. This can be seen when Abraham believed in God and God counted it to Abraham for righteousness. This was aman hifil. So it's just slightly different, but it, it contains this connotation of certainty or assurance. And then later, when Amon became Amun or Amuna, the words truthful and fidelity really came into play as well. And this is much like our modern understanding of the word believe or belief. We use this interchangeably with to know or to think. I believe this. I believe that. I believe the sun is a star in our solar system. Now, I, I believe that because I'm assured of its truthfulness. Its truthfulness has been verified, and so I believe it. This is how this concept is intermingled in Hebrew. Now, another word that, uh, that kind of takes its cue off of the word emun or emuna is bata, and that means faith or belief as well. comes also from that aman word, though it takes its cue more from the emun or emuna side of it. So it holds a heavier connotation of not just assurance or truthfulness, but trust, which is an action. So in Jeremiah 39, 18, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, for I will certainly rescue you and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as a prize to you because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. So trusted in, that is the word bata, still from that root word aman. So aman, emuna, bata, assurance, confidence, trust, fidelity, truthful, faithful, faith, belief, verified. All of these concepts can be found in just these few words. These concepts that are grand and almost enigmatic to us because we could write whole books on just these concepts alone and yet one Hebrew and Greek word is used to describe all of those things. Now I also mentioned earlier that the concept of hope is interconnected conceptually as well in these words. And this is true if we begin to look over at the Greek side of things. So aman in the Septuagint, which is just the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, often when, when the Greek writers saw aman, they translated this word pistuo, or faith. And bata, which again was that, that trust, that action part of this, in the Septuagint is most often translated elpidzo, which means hope. So then where can we find all of these concepts wrapped up into one verse to show that they are in fact distinct despite the Greek and Hebrew root words basically just having one root? Where can we find this, this in the Bible, proof of this? I think we can find this in the book of Hebrews. But first I wanna, I wanna kinda conclude with how we view these words. So for us, truth begets belief. When we affirm something is true, we're said to believe it. When we believe in it and we put our trust in that thing, we're said to have faith in it. This is an action. And then when we have faith in it, or when we have faith in something that has not happened yet, we're said to hope. 
So that's how all of these words are interconnected. One builds off of the other. They're so interconnected because they're building blocks towards the same thing, and yet they're, they're different steps in that process. So all of these concepts derive from the root Hebrew word aman, or emuna, bata, and the Greek elpidzo, or pithos. And this is because they recognize, from their understanding of the concepts, that these were separate ideas, even though it was a similar word. Now, how can we show from Scripture, like I said before, that even these ideas can really be uh, found in Scripture as different concepts? How are we justified in maintaining the idea that multiple concepts are found in just a few, just a handful of Greek and Hebrew words? If you would turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin reading towards the end of the chapter in verse 32. And I'm going to kind of break this down um, almost verse by verse to show how all these concepts are found right in this verse. So 1032 in Hebrews says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. That word illuminated, comprehended truth. That's what that means. When you were illuminated, when you were enlightened, when you comprehended truth. So there's the truth word. Then verse 33, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Knowing this truth. Belief. This is the concept of belief found in this verse. Then in verse 35, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that confidence, that endurance, this is an action. This is an exemplification of faith. Putting your trust in something to to have endurance. Putting your trust in God to grant you endurance. Continuing on, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So after yet a little while, hope. This is faith in something to come. Trust in something to come. This is hope. In verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So we don't just believe. We believe to the saving of the soul. This is a distinction that Paul makes here. We believe unto faith and hope. We don't just recognize and affirm truth, evidential truth. We go beyond that and we have trust and confidence in that truth to the point of faith or hope or assurance of the things to come. Skip on over to Hebrews 11 verse 1. This is a common verse when it comes to faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now, most people see this as an exhaustive list of what faith is. This is just, if I were to look up in the dictionary, this is what faith is, this would be the definition listed here. That's not true. It's in the context of what, of Hebrews 10.32 and the verses we just read. It's not exhaustive. This is um, uh, contextual, I think. But Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Again, a continuation of Hebrews 10, verse 39. This does not mean... That faith is belief without evidence, like we like to say so often. This does not mean that. This faith that Paul talked about earlier in Hebrews 10 goes beyond just affirming truth. 
It is also the substance or the basis for what we hope for, right? We're making that case that truth begets belief, which begets faith, which begets hope. So faith is the basis or the substance of hope, and it unto itself is also evidence of things unseen. Now remember, belief is based on truth and evidence, and this is saying that faith, so our our trust placed in God, our endurance in spite of trial, our help and strength from him in whom we trust, it can also bolster our belief because it becomes factual. We understand the things unseen because our faith responds to that thing unseen. So all four concepts, truth, which leads to belief, which leads to faith, which leads to a confident hope, they're separate and yet so intricately interwoven that it can be hard to understand them apart from one another. Now, why does this matter to today? This is probably the longest introduction you've ever heard in church ever. Why does this matter to the day of Pentecost? If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. We know that uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts. And a lot of people say that Acts chapter 1 is actually kind of a tie between Uh, like intended to be a tie between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So it almost belongs in neither book because it concludes the story of Luke and then also uh, merges into the book of Acts, kind of fills you in on some details. So it's more like an epilogue. But Acts chapter 1 verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, this is Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So picture yourself. Again, we're going to go back into context here. These men were distraught that the person they believed who would restore Israel was now dead. Just a day before Christ appeared to them, they were distraught. They were lost. So they believed the truth that he was the Christ. They believed and had faith that he was the Son of God, that he could do miracles, that he he could extricate Rome from Israel. But after his death, they lost faith in him. Not forever, but they lost faith in him because they still believed he existed, right? They still believed that God existed. But their faith that he would do these things, that he would fulfill the promises that he made to them, lacked at this moment. So they didn't have the kind of belief that led to trust and hope in a future for the cause that Jesus started. So now in this verse, Jesus is back, something they never could see coming in a million years, despite being given prophecy after prophecy that it was coming. Jesus is back, their faith and their hope is restored. So naturally they're curious about, all right, are you gonna do the things that we thought you were gonna do? And that's, that's why they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Our hope was lost for that. Our faith was lost. Our faith in you for fulfilling this promise was lost. But now you're back. Are you going to be doing this? Will he fulfill what they expected him to fulfill? 
Now, Jesus doesn't answer this. Instead, he gives them marching orders. A man who they knew was God gave them orders face to face that they were to begin working on as soon as Pentecost had come, as soon as this day right here that we're celebrating had come, they were supposed to carry out these marching orders. These men were to be witnesses to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But what actually ended up happening? These men who had just been given a command by God were granted the Holy Spirit, and then they remained in Jerusalem until approximately 42 AD, years after this command was given, years. Can you imagine God giving you a marching order and you saying, I'll get to it. I'll do the first part. I'll preach in Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria and the ends of the earth, I'm gonna wait till 42 AD to do that. This is what happened here. This is the Pentecost that we look back on. And we kind of look back on it with a sort of reverence, a sort of awe. And that's good. We look back and we say, wow, what it would have been like to see that time, to be filled with the Holy Spirit as they were filled with the Spirit, to have a tongue of fire on my head. I would have loved to see that time. But we forget these are still men. They are not perfect. We do not want to go back to emulate everything they did. A lot of what they did is written so that we specifically do not emulate it. So it's okay to look back and say, wow, what a great time. What a cool thing that would have been to see. But it's not okay to look back at the men and say, I wish I could have done exactly what they did. Because clearly, if they're waiting till 42 AD to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. Then the apostle Paul, one born out of due time, was probably converted sometime between 33 and 36 AD. And he would have begun his official ministry, spent three years in Arabia, he says. His official ministry would have begun from either 36 or 39 AD. So for at least three years, the apostle Paul was carrying out this commission from Christ to preach to the ends of the earth before the rest of the apostles even left their base of operations. I'd rather emulate that personally. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Peter or James or John. They're all great men to emulate in other respects, just not this respect. But why did this happen? Why did it take them so long to leave their base of operations? It was pretty clear. In fact, it was so clear that they wrote it down. They remembered what Christ had said to them, and yet they didn't do it. So why? Well, based on my understanding of the Jewish view of themselves as special people before God, and also the interactions of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians all throughout the book of Acts, it seems pretty evident that the Jewish Christians, who the apostles were, they were Jewish Christians, did not understand or comprehend how the Gentiles could possibly be called in. The Jewish people were the special people. The Jewish people had all these years of history of the law to fall back on to understand fully the truths that Christ preached to them. How could the Gentiles get that? We just don't have the time to preach to the Gentiles all of this history and culture that we have that lead us to salvation. How can the Gentiles be called in? Turn with me to Acts 10 and we'll see an example of this. Acts chapter 10, this is recounting um, the story of Cornelius. Cornelius. 
So remember, Peter had had a vision where a sheet came down full of unclean animals, and God told him three times, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, God, I've never eaten an unclean animal. I, I would never do that. And God said, what I call clean, you must not call unclean. And this was talking about the Gentiles that he was trying to call in. So this is years after the resurrection. Peter still doesn't get it. He sent a direct vision from God about God calling something clean and you not being able to refute that that thing is clean. And then what is Peter's response? Uh, Here in Acts chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 25. It says, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. So Peter was told, go and find this man Cornelius. But still he doesn't know what this is about, right? He's been given the vision. He's been given the command from God, from Christ, to go and preach to all the world. And still he's, he's still not getting it. So as Peter's coming in, then uh, verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? So Peter's claiming to this Gentile, I came without complaint, even though it took three times of God telling him, don't call the Gentiles unclean, I'm calling them too even though years before he had commanded him to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, Peter still didn't do it. And here, it's like he says, yeah, I understood this whole time. I came without objection. God told me to, and I went. But what am I here for? How are you not getting this, Peter? How are you not getting this? For what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius recounts, a vision that he had, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Interestingly, a tanner was also unclean. So Simon was cool going to the tanner and being ceremonially unclean there. But going to the Gentile, he's like, ah, this is going to take a vision and some explaining. He still couldn't wrap his mind that he had to be here in this moment. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. This is Cornelius to Peter. In verse 34, so you think, okay, their stories have matched up. Peter understands what Cornelius said. Cornelius understands what Peter said. Finally, they're on the same page, right? And Peter seems to say this. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Lord of all. So then he explains to him the gospel for a time. And then in verse 44, it's almost like Peter got a little bit long-winded. He preached the gospel to Cornelius, which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But then it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. It's not until this moment that it clicks. God has asked several times, go and preach to all the world, all the nations. 
in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just now, it clicks for Peter. Just Peter. Because we know that there's a huge amount of contention later amongst Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians about how they could possibly worship together. How is this relationship going to work here? But it's just now, after all this confirmation, that Peter finally says, okay, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Finally, Peter gets it. And still, he took till 42 AD to go out and preach to the nations. I don't know if it's obstinance or just didn't really understand still, but it was a slow process understanding that God was calling anyone but the Jews. There was no immediate response from the apostles. Why is this though? Why could they not understand after all the signs, after all the visions, after all the explicit commands from God, why could they not understand that this is what God wanted. If I could put it simply, they believed that something was holding the Gentiles back from salvation, which then held them back from preaching salvation to the Gentiles. So it's a huge, vicious cycle. The Gentiles can't believe there's something holding them back, so I won't go to them. But I won't go to them so they can't hear, so they can't believe vicious cycle. And this is something that I believe we can be and are often guilty of today if we don't have a proper understanding of the distinct but interconnected concepts of truth, belief, faith, and hope. We'll often say things like, the world just doesn't understand. They don't, they don't get it now because their time is later. Or we'll even go farther and say, God isn't calling them now so the message just falls on deaf ears, as if we know exactly who God is calling and when he's calling them. God's not calling them now, so there's no point in going to talk to them. They're just not going to get it. The message is going to fall on deaf ears. Now, it's true. We could go to speak to someone, and we could give good proof, good evidence, sound reasoning, and they could just say, yeah, I'm, I'm just not buying it. It sounds too superstitious to me. Sounds too religious. I, I just, yeah, it's not for me. But this doesn't excuse us. Other people's response does not excuse us from the obligation that Christ gave us and the example that he left for us. And you might say, well, I mean, I think Jesus was pretty intentional about who he went to. You know, I don't think he would have gone to anybody that wouldn't listen, at least a little bit, right? Go, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is thought to be uh, one of the first creedal statements about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the earliest attestations to the resurrection ever written down because Paul wrote a lot uh, earlier than a lot of the gospel writers did. John didn't write till much later. But this is thought to be one of the earliest times that someone wrote down that the crucifixion and the resurrection occurred. Um, probably, I've heard people say about five uh, years after Christ's resurrection. Three to five. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of time. So in total, Christ presented evidence of his resurrection to 514 people, by my count. Could have been more, could have been less. Maybe the apostles were included in the 500. I'm not sure how that worked out. But roughly 514 people, he showed them truth. And many of them probably believed the truth, unless they thought that they were insane, which I don't think 514 people thought they were all insane. They probably believed the truth. But then what came of that? What was the response? If you turn back to Acts chapter 1, we'll see. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. Christ showed himself to over 500 people. And yet, just before Pentecost, the number of the disciples was listed at 120. But still, he went to them. He didn't consider it a waste of time. He didn't say, well, they're just not going to get it, so I'm not going to waste my time with it. He went to them. We can't be worried about numbers. We can't be worried about what someone might or might not understand or comprehend. That has no bearing on what our responsibility is. We cannot be concerned with the limitations that we believe a person might have based on how special we are for our calling. And our calling is special. I'm not saying that the world at large can get what we have. That's up to God. But I am saying that what we have is meant to be shared with others and that it's our responsibility to try and do that. We might never cause someone to jump all the way to hope in Christ's second coming or the kingdom of God, or peace for all men. But what might we assist them with? What might we help them with? That we're not because we limit them. Or we say, well, it's just not their time yet. I know when God's calling people. It's not right now. We don't know who he's calling, and we don't know when. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. I think Paul... Uh, probably would have been a little bit frustrated with the apostles in Jerusalem. I think he loved them. I think uh, they had contention, but I think I like to imagine that after a while they became friends. Um, Peter and Paul in Jerusalem seem to be teaming up a little bit to present the case that Gentiles should be accepted into the church. But I think Paul was probably frustrated at some points that he's out there doing everything he can to preach to everybody he can, and you got 12 guys just Back at Jerusalem, what are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? I think it's possible that uh, what he wrote here kind of illustrates a little bit of that frustration. Romans 10, we'll start reading in verse 8. Now Paul here is talking about unbelieving Israel, but the concept still applies to, I think, all people. He says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can we apply this today? Now obviously, there is a distinction between those of us in the church and those who are not in the church. We are where we should be and we are where they should be. That's the distinction. That's the distinction. Because we were not always this way. We were not always here. Even though I was born in the church, I was not always a member of the church. I did not always make this my way of life. We all had to go through the process. We had to be called, we had to come in, We had to go through the process of finding the truth and understanding the truth and then believing the truth. We had to go through the process of having faith in that truth and then hoping for the conclusion of that truth. All of us had to go through that and might still have to go through that from time to time to strengthen what we have right now. We had to believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead We had to confess that he was our personal savior. We had to have faith that we'll not be put to shame, as it says here in Romans 10. And we had to hope and look forward to that ultimate salvation that we're looking for. Verse 14, continuing on, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How shall they call on him? That's faith. How shall they have faith in him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? That's belief. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? That's truth. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's hope. We might not be able to get them to hope, but might we help them believe? Might we present good evidence to them Might we present our lives as a living sacrifice, showing people what living for Christ is all about? Might we speak to somebody sometime about what we believe because it just means that much to us and maybe something clicks? And maybe it doesn't now. Maybe 20 years from now, all you did was put a pebble in their shoe, but they just walk on it for the next 20 years. And then 20 years down the road, God calls. But if you didn't put that pebble in there, What's he going to call? Something that's, someone that's never heard anything ever? So often we, we get to Pentecost. We read the, through the account in Acts 2. And like I said earlier, we get whimsical. We, we want to be a church like Acts 2. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be zealous. We want to be excited. We want to be energized. This is good. We should be all of these things today. This is an important holy day. This is huge. This is incredible. But if we're not filled with the Spirit if we're not zealous, if we're not excited, and we're not energized for any other reason 
than we just want to be, then what's the point? What are we doing this for? We shouldn't look back on the Pentecost where the apostles received the Holy Spirit and then waited years to utilize that Holy Spirit in preaching the gospel to the world. We should be filled with the Spirit. We should be zealous. We should be excited. We should be energized to learn from their mistakes and share what we have with anyone and everyone who might be willing to listen. And then even those that won't, as Christ did. We cannot look at the hopelessness and faithlessness in the world and conclude that it's holding them back from salvation so we hold back from preaching salvation to them. The world is hopeless. It is faithless. There are people that hate us, that hate Christians, that hate anyone who has even remotely thought the Bible could be true. They don't just disagree, they actively hate. Hopeless, faithless. But again, that doesn't mean that we might not assist them with truth, which might then lead to belief, which might then lead to faith, which might then lead to hope. They might not have hope because they lack faith. They might lack faith because they don't believe. And they might not believe because you've not shown them the truth. I've not shown them the truth. We as a church might have not shown them the truth. Every opportunity we have, not when it's convenient, not when it's a little more comfortable, any opportunity we have. I was told one time that if you had the cure for cancer, what would you do to get that word out to everybody? Who would you go to first? You know, what would be your first step to publicize that? We've got it. We have the cure for every ailment that has ever existed in the world. We have the cure for every war that's ever been waged in this world. We have the cure for every discomfort, every difficulty, every frustration. We have the cure for all of that. But how excited are we to share that with people? And is that because we look at them and say, no, they're hopeless. They're faithless. They're not going to get it. Is that why we hold back? I really hope that you have an exciting Pentecost, an uplifting Pentecost. I hope that you have an energizing Pentecost. I hope that the Holy Spirit works in you so strong, this Pentecost, to take you on to do amazing things. And I hope that you take the gift we have of God's Holy Spirit and that you use that gift because without using it, what's the point of it? Without using it, not just for yourself, but for others, what's the point? That you use that gift to give glory to God and be a light to the world.